We need to be able to step outside of our bias. We need to be able to ask better questions, listen more intently, gather that information and change our behavior. And I saw time and again that when people put their blinders on, got high on their own supply, thought they had all the right answers, like it didn't work as well as those instances where you were humble and you were curious and you were willing to listen and to have better questions than answers and all of that sort of tropey stuff that actually really does matter. Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is my guest, Michael Ventura. Michael is a leader, educator, a coach, a facilitator of practices rooted in empathy. His work guides measurable transformation for both individuals and organizations, receiving endorsements from the likes of, oh, you know, Ariana Huffington and Gary Vaynerchuk. And truth be told, I have a bit of a professional crush on Michael, so there's that, I'm just saying. Anyway, in part one today, we cover how empathy is used as a business tool for mining consumer insights for product development and creating accountability in company culture. So there's lots to get to. Let's dig in. Hey, Michael, welcome to Uncooked. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This has been a long time coming. I feel like we've been trying to get this nailed down and we're here and I'm excited to bring your expertise to my audience. So just to give them a quick heads up on your background that you were an agency leader, you're an educator, a facilitator, you've created this consultative practice that's rooted in empathy, which we're going to spend most of the time talking about here. And really what that means, and you tell me if I got it right, which is about helping large organizations, small organizations. But what really impresses me is that you've gotten the likes of GE and West Point to actually pay attention to empathy all the way down to the individual level for transformation and growth, personal and professional. Is that kind of a nutshell? Did I get that? You nailed it. Yeah. Will you call my mom and explain it to her? (laughs) (laughs) I will. Yeah. I'll talk to her in a little bit. No problem. Thanks. No problem. You know, to give us some context of who Michael Ventura is, and before we get into your path of where you are now, let's start with who was the 25-year-old version of Michael Ventura? How did you start out in your career? Introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah, happy to. So I'll take it a little farther back than 25, because I think it actually helps give context. When I was eight, I sat at the dinner table. Our family always ate dinner together. And my parents would ask questions about what it was like in school that day or whatever. And they asked the stereotypical question one night of what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't remember this conversation. It was retold to me years later by my mother, where when they asked that question, little weird eight-year-old Michael said, Mike at the time, Mm. said, "Uh, I want to be an idea man. Mm. And my parents were... The way she tells it, they gave each other a side eye, like, what the hell is this talking about? And that night, like over washing dishes or whatever they were doing, they talked to each other and they were like, what's going to happen to this boy? Like, like, you know, he didn't say like the stereotypical answer, you know, so they were very curious about me. And fast forward, as I was heading out to college, uh, my father was a second generation of a family business. A relatively unglamorous, light blue collar business in in suburban New York. And he was talking to me. We were playing basketball out front. 
And he said, I want you to know that you don't need to go into the family business. And I was like, I know that dad. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. He's like, my dad never told me that Mm. overtly. And when I went to college and I learned what I wanted to do, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. And then when I graduated, my dad looked at me and said, great, you ready to take over the family business? And the guilt of that like overwhelmed Mm. me. And that's what I did with my life. And so he was like, I don't want you to have the pressure of that looming. He goes, if you wanted to, it's there for you. But believe me, like you should pick your own path and you should do what you want to do. And so that's what I did and came out of school in 2002. So bubble had just burst and nobody wanted to hire someone with zero experience. And so ended up getting a job at an agency where I worked there for about a year as kind of a utility player. After about a year, I got let go and then was sort of floundering around trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I had a buddy who was a technologist and we had gone to college together and we both said, well, let's take a run at starting something. And so we both knew just enough to be dangerous about, you know, digital marketing and communications and strategy and brand thinking. And so we started our first version of what would ultimately evolve into the business that I, that I built and ran for 20 years. And along that way, you know, I got a lot of good advice from folks and one of them was if you don't learn how to get into trouble, you'll never learn how to get out of it. And so we took good risks and we grew smartly and got to around 50 or 60 people by the time we were circa 2007. What's an example of a good risk? Saying yes to a project that we hadn't done before that was going to make us punch above our weight a little Mm -hmm. bit, but Mm -hmm. was going to also force us to learn how to be more sophisticated as a business. So, you know, we had done a bunch of digital and strategy work for relatively unknown businesses. And then Mm -hmm. I found myself at a cocktail party one night with the CMO of PepsiCo at the time. And we were having a conversation. It was a good conversation. And afterwards he said, let's have a meeting. And we had a meeting and he said, hey, I have a project. It's not big by Pepsi standards. It's a rounding error, but it will be big for you. And if you can do it well, there'll be more. If it doesn't, then it was nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> I love <laughs> maybe that. Yeah, maybe I'll see you at another cocktail party. And so uh, that was a good example of where we said yes to something that we had, you know, just even getting into the procurement system at Pepsi was oh, yeah. a process we had never encountered before. Right. So, you know, so taking calculated risks, I think, is sort of a big part of building the entrepreneurial muscle. Got it. So I remember meeting you at the Future of Storytelling Summit a bunch of years ago, and I signed up for your archetype workshop. And that's where you introduced the notion of applied empathy, certainly to me, but was also, I found out after that workshop was the title of your book outlining the new language of leadership. And that was your 2018 publication. Why did you even think that leadership needed a new language? What problem were you aiming to solve to begin with? The thing that I think came up for me the most was that any services business, any professional services business, frankly, even product businesses, in the absence of empathy, in the absence of understanding other people and being able to take that information and use it to improve your relationship, is going to be the nail in the coffin for any leader, right? We need to be able to step outside of our bias. We need to be able to ask better questions, listen more intently, gather that information and change our behavior. And I saw time and again that when people put their blinders on, got high on their own supply, thought they had all the right answers, like it didn't work as well 
as those instances where you were humble and you were curious and you were willing to listen and to have better questions than answers and all of that sort of tropey stuff that actually really does matter. And so I wanted to learn more about that. And so I set out to read more books on empathy and understand how empathy works. And there are lots of books extolling the virtues of empathy and why empathy is good. I didn't need that case making. I believed it already. But what I was looking for was a playbook and a set of methodologies and tools because I had a 50-person team that needed to learn how to do this and do it the same way or at least a similar way. And since we couldn't find it, we did it ourselves. And that was sort of how it came to bear. And I'll add one last bit on it. You know, I was very cautious going down the road of creating a methodology because every services business has some italicized phrase in the first couple pages of their credentials document that says, this is our special thing and this is what we believe in. And I didn't want to just do that. And so we slowed our pace quite a bit, about two years before actually even from notionally coming around to the idea that empathy was the right thing to selling it to a client. It probably took about two and a half years because we went to academia and we taught it at Princeton University for three semesters and then at West Point, as you mentioned, for a semester as well, because we wanted to field test it in a place where people would feel free to tell us if it was garbage and to help us improve it if it was good but could be great. And academia felt like the right place for that, a safer place for that than doing it on a client's dime. So that's where we honed it. And then ultimately it formed itself into a methodology that we taught our team and brought to clients and then ultimately wrote the book about it. It sounds like Michael's first brush with empathy came from his father, understanding and alleviating Michael from the weight of the family business. From there, he started his ad agency called Sub Rosa, which led him to a career rooted in helping clients find their empathy muscle. He mentioned initially punching above their weight and taking quote unquote good risks. To me, a good risk is one where the opportunity comes and you know you can do it, but you have zero practical experience. This is the confidence leap most founders really have to make, imparting confidence on your potential client, giving them the confidence to say, I can do the job, and also a little bit of imparting confidence to yourself, making sure that you're actually delivering. It's important, though, to place a finer point on how Michael refers to empathy. It's not about sympathy or even compassion. It's not soft like you think it might be. It's about uncovering truths and coming at it from all different angles. It's the art of asking better questions and being really present to listen to the answers. It's applying a deep understanding of the people we're trying to serve in business and in life. I'd imagine that you've experienced over the years a shift, especially from big corporations at the very beginning of like, I'm thinking about when you started and I'm thinking about those conversations of the CEO at a big company on the other end saying, what the hell does empathy have to do with my business? From that end of the spectrum to the other end, which is having West Point reach out to you. And can you just talk about that, about that shift of that spectrum? Yeah, for sure. And I would say it's more of a persistent variable than a shift. I think it still happens, right? There are still people that I affectionately refer to as the tooth sucker in the room. It's the person who crosses their arms (laughs) and says, I don't believe this stuff. This sounds soft. How is this going to make us more money? And empathy will make you more money. 
it is not going to do it overtly, but it is going to do it through the knock-on effects of practicing it. If you understand your employees and build an ecosystem where they will thrive more effectively and the emergence of high-performing teams will occur, you will get more efficient, you will get better at your job, you will make more money. If you understand your customers and what they're looking for from you and you develop your products with those insights in mind, you will sell more products and you will make more money. So if money is your motivator, empathy is a tool to get you there. And you just need to realize that it is not a straight line or a quick fix. It is a retooling of a mindset and a practice within a culture that gets you there. And that's hard work. Right. People talk about it like it's a soft skill or soft science. This is some of the harder stuff, right? This requires individuals to be willing to change, which is one of the hardest things you get people to do. Yeah, I would imagine. Can you maybe walk us through a use case? Are you going in for one day? Is it a couple of days? Is it over a bunch of time? Just tell us your process. During my time at Sub Rosa, there were sort of different eras of there were different versions of that. So yes, there was like a half day training or a full day or a week long kind of training where we did tons of that all over the world for organizations with global offices or just a business headquartered in a particular place. That was a portion of our business, probably about 25%. The rest was using this practice to either affect change internally, doing transformation work, or externally vis-a-vis brand marketing, communications, brand strategy, things like that. And sometimes those were in moments of crisis and conflict, right? We've had a big issue that has happened and we need to rectify our reputation or we need to rebuild our reputation. In other times, it was in rapid growth, right? We've just raised a Series C and have to go from 1,500 to 15,000 employees over the next three years. And how do we maintain our culture at rapid scale? And so, you know, big, complicated questions like that, which we loved. Mm -hmm. And a use case that I love to talk about because it was an early one, and it's one that's talked about in the book, but it's one that is, in my view a proving ground for this methodology in many ways was with General Electric. And so the then CMO at the time, Beth Comstock, who still remains a very dear friend and you know someone who I have learned a lot from over the years, she came to us and we had already been working with GE and she said, we have a problem we want you to help us solve. It's in the medical imaging space. Philips and Siemens sell more medical imaging devices than we do. And we're GE. You know, we want to be first at everything. So help us figure out how to, <laughs> how to grow market share and sell more of these machines. And by machines, I mean MRI, CAT, PET, you know, all of these types of medical devices. And she said, I want you to focus on the mammography business first, because we've got some good innovation coming down the pipeline on that. And if we can solve in MAMO, for this sort of growth that we want, we can use that as a playbook for other stuff. Now, there are a lot of people at GE who then looked at Beth and I and said, you guys are crazy. Like, we need to be upping our sales quotas. We need to be like hitting the pavement and going out there as an aggressive marketing and sales organization to get into the hospitals we're not in, to convince them to switch off of Siemens or Philips products and into ours. Like, that's the, like, we got to go a hard-nosed attack against the competition. And Beth, to her credit, said, no, we actually need to understand our patients and we need to understand our customers and we need to understand what the experience is like, because if we can do that, we don't need to beat them with force. 
And so it was a feminine guided sort of approach as opposed to an archetypally masculine. <laughs> yeah. And I loved that. And so we off we went and we built a living lab in Soho in New York City at retail level. So instead of some, you know, windowless or one-way windowed focus group room, we opened a retail space in Soho and outside we put a sign that said come inside for free coffee and snacks. And by the way, talk to us about women's health. And so people would come in for the coffee and snacks or in the free Wi-Fi. But then we'd have good trained people who could say, can we take five minutes and talk with you about women's health? Can we talk with you about, have you ever had a memo? What was the experience like? Was it nerve wracking? And we learned so much and like to boil a long case down to a couple key points. Number one complaint from every person we talked to, 87% of the people we talked to said, number one reason they don't get screened on a 12-month basis is because of the memory of pain. So mm-hmm. it's really painful to hear. <laughs> yep. So instead of 12, maybe it's 14 or 16 or 18 months between screenings. Now, that's important for you as an individual because you should get screened every 12 months because that's the right frequency. But it's also important to GE and G's customers because these businesses and the way these machines operate are also about utilization. So the more they're being used, the more regularly they're in operation, the more the hospital's making, and the more their service contracts get exercised post-sale for GE so they continue to make money after the initial transaction. So if we go back to the economics of it, it's important for you, and it's also important for GE. So we can't change the machine. GE tells us if we came up with a better way to detect cancer today, it would still be six to seven years before it's on a machine in a hospital working at scale, impacting our PNL because it's just FDA approvals and the whole thing that goes to that. So pain is real, but we can't change the pain. What's the second right. biggest complaint? You have a guess? I mean, it's got to be at least either the stupid gowns they make you wear or the fact that it's like three degrees in the <laughs> office. You nailed it. Those are the second and third in reverse order. So the Get second, out. yeah, you really, you nailed it. I won the prize. <laughs> so second biggest complaint is temperature of the exam room. And third is like the discomfort around, you know, the embarrassing gown with the opening in the back. And the fact that, you know, you're sitting in some waiting room, reading a magazine that's out of date, like the customer experience, if you will, is, yeah. ter- is oh. terrible. And so we went into a clinical trial with Memorial Sloan Kettering where we changed everything but the machine. And so mm-hmm. we made the appointment making process better. We made the turnaround time on your results better. We redesigned gowns because we brought in designers who like we did a workshop for two days with a bunch of fashion designers to talk about how could we redesign hospital gowns. And we came up with some cool ideas. We increased the temperature of the exam room. We did all of these other things. And with the temperature, we asked the engineers at GE, why is the room so cold? Average temperature is 64 degrees Fahrenheit. And they said, well, 64 degrees is the optimal temperature for the lifespan of the machine. (laughs) Uh, It's not the engineer's fault. That's the engineer's job. But there should have been a human factors person somewhere along that journey that raised their hand and said, hey, but that's cold for people. And they're in those little paper gowns. Maybe we should. So we said, what would happen if we increased the temperature? And they said, well, by how much? And we said, we don't know. We're making this up as we go along. How, How about 10 degrees? And they said, well, 74 degrees is not optimal, but it won't affect the test. And we said, great, we're going to try that. So we go back to MSK and we change all that stuff. And we rescreen women who had been screened 60 days prior under new conditions. And the complaint of pain in the second screening was cut nearly in half. People said that it was way less painful, that, that the process was better. The machine did the exact same compression it sure. did days ago. That wasn't the astounding finding. The astounding finding was that we increased the efficacy of the test by over 10%. We found 10% more cancer in the second screening. Now, what is that attributable to? We started digging into that. What we learned 
was that because these women were being treated differently, because the process was going smoother, because the room was warmer, because, 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 they were more relaxed. And what happens when you're more relaxed? Your muscles soften and your tissue gets softer. And so the compression actually created a thinner surface where light could travel from the top to the bottom and scan for cancerous cells. And so now we were able to go back to the marketplace and say, there is a patient first empathic approach to medical imaging that GE is taking light years ahead of its competition, where we are bringing all of these human factors into the design of our machines and our patient experience when we work with you as a hospital. And the day they announced it, 10 hospitals signed up to do it. So Unbelievable. It, huge shift. Sorry for the long story, but I feel like it's oh. a good example of like how this all comes to bear. And also when we started, we had no idea what we were going to find out, right? But being good question askers, being good listeners, not jumping to what a lot of consultants like to do, which is jump into, I've got the right answer. Let me tell you what you should do. It was, let's slow down. Let's listen. Let's ask questions. Let's be the best question asker we can be. And let's see what surfaces. Right. That's an amazing story. I love that story. Now hear this, applying empathy to your business and marketing strategy will make you money because it's about gathering human insight and building solutions around it. The practical applications of empathy range from product development to business transformation or dealing with internal issues like rapid growth or even a crisis. Businesses who have these human tools at their fingertips will really be able to not only navigate change, but really thrive. To Beth Comstock's credit, as a leader, she knew her marketing strategy wasn't going to be about launching a feature function attack on the competition's imaging machines. She knew if she made the entire experience better, the halo effect would be more sales. And she was right. I am a huge fan of Beth Comstock, by the way. Oh, she's great. She's amazing. How do you arm big companies like this or any company? How do you arm them with the tools to ensure that this was not just a, yay, we fix mammograms. And it's actually part of either the department, the culture, the next project. What do you do to help companies there? You retain what you reward. And so if we're going to help an organization do this, we have to close that loop with how we are evaluating and remunerating employees. And so if we say empathy is important as a leadership skill, but it doesn't appear on their 360s, it doesn't factor into whether or not they get the next promotion. Nobody's mm -hmm. going to care. Some might care, but like it's not going to uniformly drive behavior change. And so what we have to do a lot of the time, in addition to training, is to go sit down and look at how do people matriculate through this organization? How do we improve the evaluation process in order to emphasize these things? And empathy may just be one of them. I can't tell you how many organizations I've met over the years who tell me that innovation is a big value of our organization. Mm -hmm. All right. How do you measure it? Uh, you know, and there's no really good answer or like it's painted on the wall in the lobby. So it must mean something to somebody. Right. But like it doesn't actually show up in training. It doesn't show up in evaluation. No one's held accountable to it. If it's a value, it needs to be valued and it needs to be measured. So then is that part of what you do is 
besides the training, but are you also kind of advising and saying like, look, this needs to be part of an employee evaluation because it has to kind of hit the books, so to speak, in order for them to actually retain it? That's right. A big part of our work and my work now post my time at Subroza is working with leaders to help figure out how to incorporate this into all facets of the business, right? How are we gathering the information from our customers or consumers and using that to inform product decision-making or improvements to our service offering? How are we working with our HR and people leaders to figure out how this lands in our employee evaluation and ultimately our comp review and all the other things that happen there? How is this ending up in our CSR? and in the ways that we show up outside of our four walls and show up as a good citizen in the communities we serve. All of those things have to have tentacles from the idea of empathy in order to make them real. It has to hook into all of those different parts of the business and make sure there are checks and balances everywhere. Do you find that it's easier for clients to wrap their heads around this for one particular problem that they need to be solved? And then they're like, oh, yeah, we need more of this. (laughs) Or is it the other way around? It's gone both ways. Some people need a pilot to see that it works and to case make because the decision to do it is not coming from the top. It's coming from a coalition of the willing at the sort of mid to senior level who are like, we do need this, but no one's listening to us. So we're going to get a win on the board and then we're going to go case make. And then there are other instances. There's one I'm working on right now where the CEO has said, this is important and we need to embrace this. And that sort of has a different approach, right? That cascades down as opposed to middle out. And I've seen both and there's not a better or worse one. And they both have their pros and cons for sure. But someone has to believe in it. Yeah, you definitely need some sort of advocate internally. So you mentioned before that there's a lot of use cases for transformation and rapid growth where people and corporations seek you out. And then you mentioned the other half of that is some brand work. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, since this is a branding podcast, about brands that you've helped find their empathetic muscle, if you will? You know, I think one of the things that is really important when doing the brand work with this is the sniff test or the sort of the reality check on, is this what our customers or consumers want of us? Are we trying to be what they actually want us to be, or are we trying to be something we think they want us to be. And a lot of the time it's the latter, that someone has said, we've read enough about the customer. We know what they want. They want this. We can show up and be this, as opposed to going out and asking. And if you ask people, they'll tell you. They will tell you point blank what they want from this brand and where this brand has permission and where this brand does not have permission in their life. And so you know, a good example of someone who certainly is known for their marketing already and their brand already is Nike, but One of the things that we really helped them get closer to was the mindset and the spirit of the everyday athlete and understanding like not the pro, not the semi-pro, not even the person who exercises or works out three or four times a week, the person who's a casual but committed athlete, someone who may run once or twice a week, maybe takes a couple weeks off but goes back but knows that they've got to take care of their body. And doing that work and understanding what makes those people tick, which is in totality, probably over 50% of Nike's customer is someone like that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the, they dabble in a couple of things. Maybe they golf a couple of times in the spring. Maybe they go skiing once or twice in the winter, mm-hmm. you know, but like they're not a quote unquote athlete. They're not running marathons. They're not doing that on a regular basis. And so what makes those people tick? 
and what will make Nike the brand for them versus someone else and going out and having those conversations and taking those insights and bringing those insights back. It's work that a lot of brand people already do, but they're doing it at their desk. They're not doing it ethnographically. They're not going out and actually rolling up their sleeves and living with these people. I mean, there was a fashion brand years ago that wanted to understand how to sell e-com fashion in different hard to penetrate markets for their product. And so we went to those places as opposed to just reading about them. And we were in South Korea and we were talking with women who buy fashion products online and we went to their homes and we went into their closets and we looked at what they had in there, how they organized their clothes. And one of the things we learned when we were going to their homes, a lot of the women we talked to said, we don't even invite our friends into our homes because we actually spend all of our money on our clothes and we want to go out to show them who we are because like their home, like one woman told us, this isn't even my art. I borrowed it from someone I know because I wanted the house to look nice when you were coming over. She's like, but really truthfully, like hey, I spent all my money on the stuff that's in the closet and I, and I wear it out in the world because that's where I live. I don't live in my house. Yeah. And so, you know, that was a huge insight for understanding how this brand could penetrate the South Korean market. And so it really matters to get out of your chair and to go ask those questions and listen and pay attention in a different way. Okay, that wraps up part one of my conversation with Michael Ventura. His empathy story begins with seeking a playbook for his 50-person team and not finding one. Like every entrepreneur, he created a service that he just wished he had. And it was important to Michael that it actually had substance for businesses to really hold on to, and it wasn't just a fluffy ideology about empathy. So over the years, Michael has really fine-tuned a methodology that takes the guesswork out of applying empathy in business. I love his quote, you retain what you reward. That really lands for me. The only way companies will adopt empathetic practices as part of the culture, product development, and marketing strategies is if it's tied to individual performance. We're human beings, and without direct accountability, it becomes just a soundbite. In the GE imaging use case, creating a welcoming environment for people to wander into was really key to getting women comfortable to really open up about their experiences. Mining insights in a windowless focus group room is really hard to compete against Michael's boots on the ground approach. So when the next opportunity arises to get consumer feedback, I challenge you to then take a beat before doing the same research you've always done and ask yourself, how can we create an environment or how can we create an experience that truly allows us to deeply know our customer? That question alone will reframe how you think about mining insights and the questions that you'll be asking. If not, just contact Michael at michaelventura.co. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can find differentiation and activate your raw truth in marketing, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. Thanks so much for listening.